Okay, so we're in chapter 26, verse 5, and the Torah is now recounting the Jewish people. As we learned yesterday, there were two reasons given for that. One is that there was a plague, and so it's like a shepherd counting the flock, see who survived, and cherishing the ones that survived. And the second was that now Moses is going to pass away, so he's kind of giving back what he was entrusted with. So they were counted when they were given into Moses' hand, entrusted with Moses, and now they're being counted again as he returns what was entrusted to him. So let's have a look. Verse 5. It starts with Ruvain, the firstborn of Israel, and says that the children of Ruvain were Hanoch, the family of the Hanochi. And this is going to be very significant in Rashi, where the, the, the fellow's name is Hanoch, right? And they were calling them the family of the Hanochites. So this is unusual in the Torah where we're getting this type of description. And, and it repeats itself again and again with each of these fa- uh, families. So the, the next one is going to be the family of the Paluites from Palu. Is a, it's, it's a lot of redundancy. And what Rashi explains, and here you, you, you can, um, in English it's hard to see it, but what's being added over here um, Yeah, it's hard to do it on the English side. I have to do it on the Hebrew side. So what's being added over here when you have um, the name here is Hanoch. So that's the name, Hanoch. You have it over here, Hanoch. And what's being added here is a He, the letter He at the beginning of the word, which signifies the. And then a Yud at the end. Uh, creates this, the, the Paloites from Palo, or the, the Hanochites from Hanoch. So what's being added to the name is basically a He, or H in English, and a, and a Yud, which is basically a Y. And the significance of this, Rashi tells us, is that those are the letters of God's name, right? There's God's four-letter name is Y and H and V and H, but there's also a name of God that is simply Y and H, or as we say in, in the Hebrew, Yud K. Um, and the significance, the, the, there's a tremendous significance here where God in the Torah is sort of wrapping each of these families in his name. Very beautiful concept where God is putting his name around each of these families. Now, what is the significance of it? And also, question for you, is why is it out of order? Why is the hey before the yud? It's kind of backwards. Um, and why this name of God? There's many other names of God. So let's have a look at Rashi, and then we'll we'll answer those questions. So Rashi says as follows: Fisha mivazinotam. The nations of the world were shaming, denigrating the Jewish people, and saying, "What are they doing over here?" They're saying, "Oh, this one comes from this tribe, and that one comes from that tribe, and this family and that family." Do they really think that their lineage? is really goes back to the to the fathers the egyptians do they think that the egyptians did not exploit their mothers if they had if they had enslaved them they were enslaving the men certainly they had control over their wives so this is what the nations of the world were saying and denigrating the jewish people mocking them 
So therefore, God places his name and wraps his name around each family. Hey, mitzadze, the letter hey on this side, and the letter yud on that side, as if to say, I, God, I testify regarding them that they are indeed the children of their fathers. Now, why is it the yud and the hey? So there's a very beautiful commentary. Um, I forget from which commentary on Rashi, one of the super commentaries. Or the super commentary means a commentary on a commentary. One of the commentaries in Rashi says that the yud and the hey are very significant when it comes to marriage because uh, the name for a man is ish. The word for man is ish. The word for a woman is isha. They're basically the same word. They both have the the A and SH sound or the Aleph and the Shin. The only difference is that Ish has a Yud in it, the Y, and Isha, woman, has the He in it. So basically the man in the relationship is the Yud, the woman in the relationship is the He. And what the Talmud says is that when man and woman, when husband and wife are at peace, then God's name is upon them, the Yud and the He, the divine presence rests upon that, that union, that relationship, where if God forbid they're not at peace, then the Yud and the He, the, name, the letters of the name of God, disappear and you're left with Aish. Aish is fire and not a good fire. So the Yud and the He are, it's not just random that this name of God is the one that is used to enwrap each family, but rather expresses the idea of the relationship and the godliness and the divinity resting upon the relationship. That's why it's specifically these two letters of God's name. The question of why the hey before the yud, since God's name is yud and hey, not hey and yud. The answer to that, one of the commentators, Maskil le David, he says that we know from the Gemara, the Talmud says that it was in the merit of the women that the Jewish people got out of Egypt. The women had the faith that the men did it, and we'll see it later in the Parsha as well, repeated again, um, this, like, this concept. And so that is why the hey, which represents the woman from Isha, is before the yud, which represents the man of Ish. So continuing, next verses, we just have verse after verse uh, with these various families. I'm not going to go through all of them. And then it counts the number of each one. So for the Reubenites, tra- tribe of Reuben, you've got 43,730. Uh, in verse 9, we talk about Dasan and Aviram, the infamous uh, collaborators and allies of Korach. And the verse reminds us of that, that they were they, they caused this dispute with Moshe and Aaron. And Torah recounts what happened to them in verse 10, that the earth opened its mouth, swallowed them, and the 250, and they became a sign for all time, not to mess with the kahuna, with the kohenim and the and the priesthood. Now here we have a fascinating verse. Verse eleven says, "Ubnei Korach, the children of Korach, lo metu, they did not die." Wow. Rashi tells us even something even more incredible. He says, "Heim hayubeitzatchila, the children of Korach were originally involved in the conspiracy of Korach. However," At some point during the dispute, they had a feeling of teshuva, a thought of teshuva of repentance in their hearts. 
Therefore, a place was gathered for them in Gehinom, and they, and they stayed there. As the Rebbe explains it, this is from the Gemara in Sanhedrin, though as the Rebbe explains it, the, and be, on the one hand, they were, they were a part of, of this uh, revolution and this, this uh, dispute with Moshe. However, since they had a thought of Teshuvah in their hearts, their lives were, were saved. But because it was only a thought, they didn't actually do Teshuvah or they didn't do Teshuvah in time, they were swallowed by the earth as well, but in such a way that they could eventually come out and survive. And we know, in fact, that their descendants, we have Shmuel, Samuel the prophet, who one of the greatest prophets is compared in, in stature to Moshe and Aaron equally, and uh, it descends from Korah, from these children of Korah, which presumably is how we know that they, they lived, because if they didn't live, how could they have had the descendant Shemuel? And secondly, if you read the Psalms, you'll often come across Psalms that are written by the sons of Korah, by the children of Korah. So clearly they survived. And this Rashi is giving us the secret of, of how that happened. We also have a beautiful lesson in this whole story, which is even the sons of Korah, who fell to such depths that they were in fact swallowed by the earth, because they had a thought of teshuva, a thought of repentance, they were able to emerge from that. And not only that, but their descendants reached the highest of heights, the great prophet Samuel and some of the authors of the Psalms. So it's, of course, a lesson for, for ourselves. We ever feel like we've been swallowed by the earth, metaphorically, for our own actions or for whatever reason, we know that there, there's a, a precedent for crawling out of it. Arois krichen, as we say in Yiddish. Verse 12 continues with the tribe of Shimon. And Rashi here, there's a very long Rashi where Rashi basically says that when you see this, when you compare this counting to the counting at the beginning of their sojourn in the desert, you'll see a bunch of families that are just gone. They disappeared. Rashi tells us, yes, a number of families um, didn't make it. And he mentions that particularly the tribe of Shimon, which, as we saw in last week's Parsha, in the beginning of this week's Parsha, they were the, their leader was engaged in that the major sin. And so there was a plague. The 24,000 people who died in the plague was from the tribe of Shimon. That's why when you compare the numbers of what they looked like before and what they looked like after, there's a great reduction I think it's 37,000 in the uh, tribe of Shimon. Uh, verse 19, I'm jumping ahead. It talks about the, the sons of Judah, Aaron Onan, who died earlier on and mentions that they died in the land of Canaan. Um, jumping ahead. Ah, okay. So this, this is a very also very interesting Rashi, where Rashi talks about how the prophecy of Rachel, if you remember from Genesis, that when Binyamin, Benjamin, was born, Rachel died, basically, in childbirth. And she called this son that was going to be born Ben-Oni, the son of my grief, son of my mourning. And Yaakov called him Benjamin, the son of, of, of the right hand, the son of strength, giving him strength. But we do see, Rashi says, that her, her prophecy, basically calling him the son of my grief, was fulfilled because five families 
of the children of Binyamin, and he had a total of 10, um, disappeared, are gone. And furthermore, later in history, there's the famous story of the Pilegish at Giva in, this, in the book of Judges, where the tribe of Benjamin was nearly wiped out. That was all a fulfillment of the prophecy of Rachel, where she called Benyamin Benoni. But again, we see with the story of ben, the, the same idea, uh, as we see with the, the children of Korach coming out of the earth, that even though Binyamin had this very, very challenging um, history, they were able to come out of that even after being nearly, nearly wiped out and returning from, from that. So again, this lesson of being able to return even from a very, very drastic situation. Moving along, I'm skipping now ahead to Arashi on verse 36, where it talks about the descendants of Shuthala, or in Hebrew, Shuselach, the family of the Aaronites from Aran. Aran, interestingly, is a, is a modern Hebrew name today. So it's, it's actually a biblical name, Aran. Now, Rashi here sums up and says that there are um, 57 families that are counted here, total of 57 if you count up all the families. And then we're going to see with the, 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 uh, the Levites who are counted separately that there are eight. So what's the total? 57 and eight is 65. Rashi tells us, what's the significance of 65? He says, we know that the nations are described as being of 70 families, the 70 nations. And that's back in, in, uh, in, in Parshas Noah, back at the beginning of Genesis. So we have this concept of 70 nations. And the understanding of that is that all the other nations are descendants of that, of those 70 nations. But our family is 65. It's, it's a little bit less. It's five less. And he says that that is the meaning of the verse in Deuteronomy where it says, you are the smallest. You are the least of the peoples. And the word for the least is hamat. Again, we have the hey. The hey is the fifth letter of the Hebrew uh, alphabet, Aleph, Beis, Gimel, Dalet, hey. So it's hamat means you are five less than the families of the world, which are 70. He quotes that from the teachings of Rabbi Moshe Adarshan. Another interesting Rashi in verse 38, where it talks about the children of Binyamin and mentions one of, the, one of his sons as Achiram. Who is Achiram? Rashi says that, as he already told us back in Genesis, that Benjamin named all of his 10 children after his brother Joseph, who had been, um, at the time, he had been missing. So he called one of his sons Achiram. Achi is my brother. Ach is brother. Achi, my, my brother. Ram means lofty. And he called, as Rashi says, because he called him, named him after Yosef, who was this brother, his lofty brother, his, his exalted brother, that's why he called him Achiram. And in 39, similarly, um, there's some, one of his sons is Shifufam. Rashi tells us that that in, back in Genesis, he's called Mupim. And so Rashi makes that comment a number of times where the names are a little bit different than we have them earlier on in the Torah. And Shifufam is also a name of Benjamin's son that he named after Joseph because Shafuf means exiled, or as he has their translation, humbled among the nations that the way he perceived Joseph is that he had been taken as a slave and um, humbled among the nations. Moving right along, we have a very interesting verse, verse 46, which says that the name 
of Asher's daughter was Sarah. And now, and typically, we're all just named with this. She's the only woman who is mentioned. And Rashi tells us this is because she was still alive at this time. She lived a, a extraordinary long life, and that's why she's mentioned here. And she's a a, a a legendary figure. She's the one who, when Yosef is discovered and they come back to tell Yaakov that Yosef is still alive and they want to break it to him slowly because they don't want him to be overwhelmed by the news. They have Sarah, his granddaughter, to play on her harp and, and sing that Yosef is still alive just to kind of plant the seed in his mind that this might be possible before hitting him with the news. So that concludes the Monday portion of our Parsha. And we'll open it up to questions and comments. Okay. No questions today. So we'll... I got one for you. Go go for it. Is there any... So I have two questions. Why, why does the Torah list all these families and go to such lengths to do that? Like they could do it in one verse and say there were 65 families and even list them and make that one verse and they split it up and they say who had what. And I don't understand this, the significance of it. I do the standard of Oh, I'll skip over that. I got it. A lot of families. Okay. You know, and, and, and do that. And I don't even know if I'm doing something wrong by doing that, but is there, there's gotta be some more significance since there's not even a letter in the Torah that's not there for a reason. Right. That's an excellent, excellent question. Thank you for bringing that up. So, you know, the, 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 the peep, the children of Israel, that went down to Egypt and that left from Egypt, this whole generation that we read so much about again and again, every year, their story is so significant because it's our story. And the reason for that is because all, all Jewish souls of all history descend from those 600,000, right? So everything that happens to them, happen to us. So it's not just we're learning lessons from, of course, we are learning lessons from their mistakes and what they learned, but it's also we're reading about what happened to ourselves. And so here's a perfect example of, of why it's significant to name every single family. And, and is an, an easy answer on this one, because as we learned, God is putting his name, he's wrapping his name after each family, uh, 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 around each family. That means he's wrapping his name around us because we are descendant from one of those families. Uh-huh. So I, I, uh, I read through them quickly because we're, we're limited on time, but definitely you got to read them all. I'm, 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 I took notes that you, now we got, we've got you on that on record that you skipped it, John. So <laughs> you expect something in the mail well, from us. This is going to be a long list, Rabbi. <laughs> yes. So could I make another point? Uh, Rabbi? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I thought it was wonderful, actually a beautiful comment at the beginning around the same point that God wraps himself around the people. Also around a married couple, you mentioned when there's peace, or we could say love, um, that God wraps himself around that yudkai, yudkai. Uh, but if there's not, if there's not peace, 
that's gone. You have Ish and Isha, right? But no peace. <laughs> right. You know, that's Yashikoa, Bill. You know, and that, that's a beautiful thing that we have peace. We can have love. We can have God wrapping himself around us. That's a beautiful point. Right, right. But I just ask one other thing about Korah's sons. It said because they had considered repentance, they, uh, they were able to, but it said they stayed in Gehinom. Well, that's a kind of purgatory, isn't it? I mean, why would, would they have to stay? I mean, is that a permanent thing? Right. So the explanation and understanding is that they must have gotten out because we know that they have this, we have descendants of Korach, Samuel, and, and, the, and the children of Korach uh, who are in the Psalms. In fact, uh, I believe it's just before we, we, we uh, sound the shofar on Rosh Hashanah, we read a psalm seven times, and that psalm begins, Livnei Korach, by the children of Korach. It's really striking that, you know, here's Korach. He's the, he's the you know, the enemy in, in the Torah, and, and yet it's his children that, are, that were reading their psalm just before the sounding of the shofar, which is really very significant because, you know, it, it kind of is a subliminal message of, you know, here's the new year, don't think, Look what happened with, with Korach. Even children of Korach in the earth, buried in the earth, were able to come out. Everybody has a chance. Um, so the understanding is that they were there and um, for a while and a long time and were able to survive there and came out close to the time, around this time when, when it was time to go into the land of Israel. But throughout the time in the desert, they were actually in their little... Uh, Hubbard over there, miraculously surviving. And does, so that's, that brings a couple of interesting things to mind. Number one is there are some sons of Korach that came out of Ganam, and I'm mispronouncing, excuse me. Um, there are some that, there are some of the family that never did. And then there are uh, ones that never went in because, and does, I wonder if there's a, first of all, you can, um, repent. You can come back to being righteous. You can, you know, Hashem will forgive kind of, you know, um, and there seems to be different levels. So is there something around repenting or, or asking forgiveness or re recognizing your mistake and asking forgiveness early, medium, and long, you know, like quickly seeing the error of your ways medium length seeing is there anything right, around right. that message perhaps yeah i mean i i don't i'm not sure what you're referring to about you know the various sons of korach um well weren't there a few sons that didn't go into ganam and then come out and then there were other children that or was it part of the families? And, and, I, and I fully admit, I do not understand the whole lineage and such. So apologies yeah. there. I mean, it, it could, I'm not, I'm, I'm not read up on, on what happened there. I'm just going by what Rashi has. Yeah. And the verse, it just says the children of Korah. So it sounds like all of them. Okay. Uh, came, but they never went in, right? They were spared and they lived. Look, what Rashi is saying is that Korah, yeah. Korach himself was swallowed by the earth and never came out. And right. the 200, other 250 men that were with him. Yes. But the children of Korach, they yeah. were swallowed up, but did come out in the end. The, who are the ones that didn't 
go in in the first place? They repented before the swallowing, if you will. Were there any of the family or maybe it's others? Somebody was, I thought, spared. I absolutely could have that wrong. But Right. I mean, there was the Onben Palace that, you know, his wife convinced him not to get involved to begin with. So that you could be thinking of that. Yeah, that had a different wisdom to it, though. The beauty, the the, the intelligence and wisdom of, 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 of his wife. Yeah. 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 Um, but it, it, I just was thinking, so maybe the folks, that, so the children of Korach came out, they repented in a, in a time that they got to finish fulfilling their prophecy or what they were to this life. And the others that didn't, they were forced to reincarnate and come back and, you know, they didn't get it done in that time, if you will. Right. And I wonder if there's a when you do there, you know, the, it, it seems to tie together with what you do and when you do it. And also right. that there is like you do like it's not like you don't ever get a second chance. It's just a matter of when. Right. And right. that opens our eyes to like, wait a minute, don't just think about you. There's this whole you're a part of this huge group, this of wonderful we're all part of god right i don't know that's what came to mind for me yeah that's, that's a good beautiful. point John. and uh, i'm sorry i don't have all the facts down when i ask and i, and I apologize for that i'm trying to no worries you that's what you taught the rabbi in the, the journey of the soul in the class wasn't it that uh everyone has to go through some period in yehinom to kind of get back in good grace in a sense or back to god but there is no permanent kind of hell where people are just gone and they're forever. Right. Isn't that true? I, I thought that was right. True. Yeah. Okay. And in Korok is like the, you know, like for all the not so good that he did, look at all the great that comes out of it and the wisdom and the teachings and the, like, you know, almost, it was almost like the lessons that came out of his actions and the good that that brought is almost better than any verbal teachings we could ever do. You know, like if you just tell the action, it's almost like Hashem put that, well, he did everything, but you know, it, that bad thing led to, led to all these wonderful things to remember. So you try to do your best all the time and you know, all of that. I don't, you know, exactly. That's a beautiful point. Yeah, it is. It always all right. Way bad and good isn't there that tension between bad and good yeah. good can come out of bad uh, as sean saying yeah good point john exactly all right well i'll leave you with a question which is we say that the there were 70 families that went down to egypt corresponding to those 70 nations of the world since it's our job as a jewish people to be a light onto the nation so it's 70 to 70 but now we see there were only 65 uh, by the time they came into the land of Israel. So how does that work? Right. Leave, if you figure it out, let us know. <laughs> Thank you.